Delaware County's premier podcast with your hosts, Dennis and Michelle. Welcome to This Week in the Bear Cave, everyone. I'm Dennis Zarrell, and this week we are sponsored by Abode Real Estate, your professional real estate advisors in Colorado Springs and Teller County, the historic Butte Theater in Cripple Creek, bringing you the best in melodrama productions in the entire United States, in the Shadow Designs, the place where your custom creations are made for all occasions, and Peak Washing, LLC, the pressure washing professionals for that dirty job. Well, I hope everyone had a great extended weekend and a great Labor Day. I know I did. Didn't do a whole lot of things, but uh, did take a trip up to Cripple Creek and Victor this weekend. And quite a few people up there. All kinds of stuff going on. Had some good food. But, you know, it's kind of sad. I can't believe the semi-official end of summer is here. Man, what a summer. That kind of went by fast. But uh, I do love the fall. And watching the seasons change is one of my favorite, yeah, I don't know, kind of human observations, I suppose. When you live on the West Coast as long as I did, there really isn't much change in seasons. And certainly not as dramatic as we have here in the Colorado area and in the Rockies in general. And Teller County is really amazing and it's such a beautiful place and I'm so grateful that I live here. And I'm also grateful that the Bear Cave is located in Teller County. You know, sometimes we take things for granted I'm just grateful that I'm here and every day that I wake up in the morning, I just take a look outside and see that beautiful forest, see Pikes Peak up there and just, uh, it's just a a great place to be. Good time to be alive here in Teller County. Well, one other thing I can speak for the team here in the Bear Cave is that we are grateful to you, our listeners. We just went over 2,000 downloads to date on Podbean and I want to thank all of you for listening and for putting up with my antics every week and sending me your hate mail and to our sponsors for being with us. I really appreciate it and your support. So here's to the next 2,000 downloads, I guess. Cheers to you. Well, the lineup this week is a good one. I'm stoked today because we have local musician Carrie Dell coming into the Bear Cave, and we're going to talk to her for a little bit about her music and a new album that she's about ready to drop. Next week, we have our title sponsor, Josh Dorsey from Abode Real Estate, coming into the Bear Cave Hotline to talk about some of the recent real estate issues. And then on the third week of September, we have Woodland Park Chief of Police Chris Deisler coming in. Looking forward to having him come in the show, and hopefully we can spend a few minutes with him. I know he's a busy guy, but uh, yeah, we're just going to kind of roll with it. Well, it's been kind of another interesting week that has just passed. If uh, you space geeks are like me, NASA scrapped the Artemis launch once again this week. Or I guess I should say last week it was Saturday. This time it seemed to be kind of a combination of problems, which mostly involve operations during fueling and fuel leaks, you know, some fissures, that kind of thing. Yeah, hydrogen leaks are definitely no bueno. Not quite sure if it was a main tank or a seal of some sort that caused the problem or if it was actually part of the launch pad fueling system itself. There were some reports of some possible little fissures and cracks in that orange tank that sits in between the two solid rocket boosters. So NASA will not attempt another launch early in September and it's back to the rocket garage or better known as the VAB or the vehicle assembly building and that's where they will decide what to do next so I mean it's kind of hard to tell perhaps it could be replacing a seal or maybe it's work that needs to be performed on replacing the entire pad itself 
who knows? So obviously there's a few things to work out and maybe they'll attempt another launch sometime in mid-October or after that. And again, I think they're doing the right thing. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint on this test flight. You got to get it right and not bend to political pressure. NASA was always kind of accused of that in the past with some of the space shuttle programs that they were sacrificing safety for speed. I mean, think about it. Going to the moon with this system is a huge challenge. And if they have to do more testing, so be it. Let them do it. Don't light that candle until it's absolutely ready to fly. So good for you, NASA. Well, he called it saving the soul of America. That's right. Sniffy's speech last week, saving the soul of America. Seriously? I decided to catch the uh, the replay, I guess, the next day because I was watching a Vibes game, which was a little bit more important to me. But then, that's just me. That whole babbling dribble that comes out of his mouth, nothing has changed. It was a complete midterm campaign speech against Donald Trump and anyone who supports him in any way, shape, or form. And I think he mentioned MAGA 13 times. I was one of those guys, had a pencil in hand and a piece of paper. And sure enough, he mentioned it 13 times in what was a 27-minute speech and a waste of airtime. When I finally did watch it a couple of days later, I sort of fast-forwarded through some of the same old minutia, the same old campaign rhetoric, and pretty much it sounded like an incoherent Mein Kampf theatric that was uh, unfolding in, in front of the television set. And one thing, whoever lit that set in Pennsylvania, they made it look more like Transylvania. It looked like a set out of Vendetta, you know, the big background going on and Sniffy's raising his fists in the air like, you know, some kind of an Adolf rally that he was at. But the best part, then came the hecklers. They had the megaphone out and they're yelling, F Joe Biden, or, well, you know, let's go, Brandon. That's basically what they were saying. Then there was a series of sirens blaring from the megaphones and, oh my God, what a circus. And, you know, he tried to play it off. He's like, oh, I support your, your right to say whatever you want. But clearly, you could tell it was throwing him off his game. And, uh, you know, the guy's got an attention span of a carrot. Anyway, there were so many sirens and megaphones going off through that whole speech. And I was just like, oh, boy, more of the same. But what was unbelievable to me was the saving of the soul of America. I think the only souls that need some saving is maybe Hunter Biden. I don't, I'm not sure. You know, mirrors of coke all lined up. That would have been appropriate because the thing was kind of lit up like a strip club anyway. But besides the same old sniffy Joe rambling, I was most surprised by the Marines who were standing in the background. I mean, what the hell was that all about? To me, it raises questions about why the White House would undercut the message about the need to protect democracy and respect for institutions that he kept talking about by posting service members behind Sniffy as he delivered a political speech. It's really completely contrary to the military maintaining a neutral political opinion, and it's just wrong when political parties do it. And the comments that I was reading from veterans, whether they were conservative or liberals, pretty much all agreed that the optics sent the wrong message. So quit using the military as props, politicians. I think whoever thought this was a good idea should be fired. But in all fairness, you know, he's not the only one who's done that. Past presidents have politicized the military and they've gotten heat for it as well. But none of them lit it up like the gates of hell that he was standing in front of. <laughs> I'm just still laughing about all that. Well, in general, I can wrap this up pretty easily. The speech hammered MAGA Republicans as a threat to democracy. That's what he said. They're a threat to democracy. So, you know, nothing like a wartime speech to Americans against Americans. That's what I heard. I guess he thought it was supposed to be like some kind of a scary speech. 
All I can say is that was kind of a sad attempt at distracting Americans from the failing economy, the failing policies, and it was almost a rally for Antifa from being an idea to being his idea. Well, flush hard, voters, because it is a long way to the septic tank come November. Speaking of administrations and weird stuff going on, she is back in the bear cave crosshairs yet once again. And I'm talking about White House spokeshole Karine Jean-Pierre. Last week, she was in full damage control by using this revisionist history that they love to use all the time. What they do is they cast blame on the Donald for the COVID-era school closures that hurt American children. Now, as I recall, it was the left that were petrified of in-person learning during the whole pandemic issue. But there was good old Kareen blaming the Donald for closed schools when, in fact, he said on numerous occasions, you can look it up, it's on YouTube, it's, you know, it's plastered everywhere, that the schools need to stay open and the fear-mongering was largely prompted by the teachers' union and even the medical experts, you know, like uh, our pal Dr. Fakey. It was primarily the left that accused nail salons of being the cause of COVID super spreaders. Remember that one? Yeah, good old Governor Deputy Duke Gavin Newsom from California was the one who started that one. And uh, what was the result? He got sued. In 2022, there was a report that just came out that average children's scores declined by five points in reading and seven points in math as compared to 2020. That is, in fact, the largest average score decline in reading since 1990 and the first ever score decline in math. But oh no, Jean-Pierre just blamed it on the previous administration. So easy to do. Here's what she said. She said, let's take a step back to where we were not too long ago when this president walked into the administration. How mismanaged the response to the pandemic was. How less than six months, our schools went from 46% open to nearly all of them being open full time. That was the work of this president. And here's the best part. That was the work of the Democrats in spite of Republicans not voting for the Americans Rescue Plan, which cost $130 billion. And it was supposed to go to like, remember the school ventilation and tutoring and special teachers. And we'll be able to have more teachers to hire this coming school year. And she says that was because of the work that the administration did. We're in a place where schools were not open. The economy was shut down. Businesses were shut down. Yeah, we know. We were there. And are you kidding me right now? It was the teachers that didn't want to go back to school. It was the teachers that didn't want to go back to work. And it was Dr. Fakey and his army all along with the CDC that shut down America. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. The words that are coming out of Jean-Pierre's mouth hole and this revisionist history, to me, it's so astounding that I'm wondering if she's reading the wrong script in her little binder that she carries. And I think the puppet masters in the White House definitely know it. We're not stupid for crying out loud. And these canned questions that she keeps getting during these uh, press conferences, she always answers by looking down and reading the canned script that's there. I think the only person that she doesn't have answers for is when Peter Ducey starts to rail on her, but... Uh, that's, that's uh, kind of comical, but it's it's really painful to watch these days. But kind of getting back to this whole administration saving the schools and opening things up. I mean, this is nothing more than gaslighting and inverting reality. Anybody with a brain knows that it was the left and the teachers union that led the effort to keep the schools closed. 
But that's just fine because the whole time this was happening, nobody said a word about protesters to go into the street, burn cities to the ground, loot, and basically just break the law whenever they wanted to. Don't forget about that part there, Katrine. Yeah, we'll just overlook that. Taking over city parks, committing murders, and then calling the police to come and rescue us after we protest trying to defund the police. Oh, man. One thing I find it's kind of interesting that she failed to mention was that the American Federation of Teachers Chief, you know, the person in charge is, I think her name is Randy Weingarten. And she was the one who famously pushed the shutdowns. But it's funny how she never received any kind of criticism at all or, you know, any criticism from the news media outlets for that matter. But nope, nobody mentioned that one. So basically the teachers unions were really the one who flunked the pandemic in my view. And the sheeple went right along with it. Well, all I can say is enjoy the ride there, Miss Jean-Pierre, because it's not going to be too long before uh, this is all going to be over. And you'll be back to doing, I don't know, whatever the hell it was you were doing before you got on that mic. I do know one thing, your job wasn't to tell the truth, that's for sure. And it's kind of all the press secretaries, it's their shtick. They just stand there and they just act like no one remembers the insanity that we just went through. And still we're going through it today. I mean, at this very moment. If I were her, I would bail now. You know, just like uh, the rest of the press secretaries do. They see the writing on the wall from, you know, whatever network is, is going to offer them the most money and they bail. Well, maybe Peppermint Patty can hook her up with some nice little production coordinator job somewhere. I don't know. When we come back in the Bear Cave studio, we'll be spending some time with a very well-known musician in these here parts. It's Carrie Dell, up next. You know, moving can be stressful. I know. I've moved 13 times in 20 years and I've lived in four different states. When it finally came time to move back to Colorado, Woodland Park and Teller County were our target locations. But before I moved back home, I was looking for a real estate broker who understood and had experience with military families and knew the area well. I found Abode Real Estate and Joshua Dorsey. I called Josh right away and it only took 35 days to not only find our forever home, but to close and move into it. Josh understood exactly what we were looking for because he's a common sense person and knows a good deal from a bad one. He'll make every effort to make sure you get the home that you absolutely want and love. As your real estate advisor, Josh will focus on client satisfaction. His business is about service and he's not happy until you're happy. Whether it's finding you a home, finding the best loan, or helping you get the most out of selling your home, Josh is there to guide you. So if you're considering a real estate professional, give Josh a call today at 719-433-4773 or email him at joshua at csabode.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A at csabode.com. I'm confident that you will be completely satisfied. Welcome back to the Bear Cave, everyone. My name is Dennis Zero, and today I'm really stoked about my guest today because uh, it's been a long time coming. And uh, local musician and regionally well-known, my guest today is Carrie Dell. Carrie, welcome to the Bear Cave. Thank you for having me, Dennis. I got to tell you, I was, uh, I, I'm not kidding when I said I was really stoked because uh, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was 
surfing YouTube or something. And one of the videos that you posted came up. I was like, who is this? You know, and uh, I think, I can't remember what song it was that I listened to. I think it was I'd Rather Go Blind. I might have posted it on Facebook. It might have been. I'd Rather Go Blind. Yeah, me playing it live at the Hillside Gardens there in Color Springs. Yeah, and it was like, Man, this lady's got a set of pipes. I, I got to talk to her because I'm, I love blues and uh, I guess I'm kind of a all over the place kind of person when I listen to. Uh, you know, I grew up with uh, Led Zeppelin and, you know, that kind of thing in the 60s and 70s. I find the older I get, my my music tastes have changed a little bit. But when I heard you, I went, who is this person? And I found out you were living in Woodland Park. It's like, I got to call her right away. Cool. We had a really nice discussion. We talked for like over an hour, I think, the first time. Yes, we did. We, we talked quite a bit on the phone. Yep. Take me back a little bit. How did this whole music thing get started for you? You're from... I'm from Austin, Texas. And uh, my mom loved music um, and always sang around me as a child. And so my first love for music already started as, pretty much as an infant. And uh, my mom mom was always singing with the radio and albums. And, and then uh, about 11 or 12, I started guitar lessons, um, took private lessons there in Austin, Texas once a week and uh, really liked the Beatles a lot and was showing a lot of interest in, in music. So I just started taking lessons and then I never knew I'd be such a great guitar player. Yeah. I just started young and never stopped practicing. Who did you listen to a lot? You said you listened to the Beatles. Who else influenced you at an early age? Um, my first album I really remember listening to a lot of was uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. I love that album. I would sing that whole album. And I realized I really like soundtrack music. Um, I liked Star Wars was another album I listened to. That was my first album that I actually owned. And I listened to it over and over. So I really liked instrumental music, soundtrack music. And my mom was in a production of Jesus Christ Superstar. So I used to go to rehearsals with her and she'd be practicing. And so I just really loved that album. And then uh, from the Beatles, I really liked all my parents' music, the Moody Blues, Elton John. Pretty much singer-songwriters were my kind of my biggest... I guess, influence. I liked Billy Joel in the 80s. I mean, he was kind of big when I was growing up. Um, boy, there's just pretty much my parents' generation, all 60s and 70s music pretty much influenced me and John Williams and composers like uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and stuff like that. Yeah, we're kind of on the same tune of music with that. Do you remember the first concert you ever went to? Yes, I do. Who'd you see? It was ELO. I was like 10 years old. It was before I was even playing guitar. And I was like, that was one of the first bands I liked was ELO, that and Air Supply. Was that back in the 70s? No, no. My first concert was, I was about 10. I, I was born in 71. So it was about 1981, 82. I went to see ELO in Austin. And I like that orchestration, I guess, because I like soundtrack music. It had rock, but it had orchestration. And this is before I knew who the Beatles were. So when I saw ELO, I didn't know who the Beatles were yet. And so I didn't realize ELO was influenced by the Beatles. I didn't know the order yet of how uh, those two bands, you know, influenced each other. But yeah, that was my first concert. Loved it. They were kind of far away. I was really up on the second balcony looking down at the musicians. They looked pretty small. It's funny that you say that. I remember the first time I, I hadn't heard about them. It was probably, I don't know, mid seventies. And I saw a poster at my high school. It says ELO. Like who, what is ELO? And they were playing in Salt Lake City. Yeah. And I, I didn't see them that time. I saw them, you know, a few years later, but uh, when did Austin really start to explode in the music scene? Cause I, I've always kind of watched Austin city limits and seen, yeah. I would say the mid 80s, about the time I was taking guitar lessons, my uh, second guitar teacher knew Steve Ray Vaughan really well. I mean, he, he actually was friends with them and I'm sure played gigs with them. So, but my first guitar teacher was not a, a working musician, like gigging out and stuff like that. So uh, I would say the mid, mid 80s, about 84, 85, Austin became really known to be the live music capital of the world. Right. 
And then after the late 80s, after Steve Ray Vaughn got big, everyone wanted to move to Austin. Pretty much everyone wanted to get discovered, I guess, there. But it just got bigger and bigger, <laughs> mainly because Dell Computers also started taking off in the late 80s, too, since Michael Dell is also from Austin. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's where Dell Computers started, and that's why we became such a popular place to move to because of we became the new Silicon Valley, basically. So you spent, well, most of your life there, right? Yeah. Yep. I went to college there in uh, the Austin area. Well, actually, it's San Marcos, but it's about an hour from Austin, 45 minutes to an hour. And uh, yeah, I went to high school all in that area. So uh, didn't come to Colorado till originally 1999. I came here and spent two years here and had to go back to Texas and then came back as fast as I could back to Colorado in 2006. Oh, so you've been here for a minute. Yeah, I've been here for a while. When did you know that uh, music was something that you may want to do for a living and just pursue? that? Um, when I was a teenager, but I, I wasn't that good back then, but uh, I thought, man, it'd be so cool if I could do this for a living, either write songs for a living or write music somehow for a living or any way of making money playing music. I never knew I'd be this good to actually do it though. Yeah. At that time, I just wasn't as, as confident or as good at the guitar. Do you remember your first gig that you ever played? Um, I don't know. Really remember my first gig. I probably played in college somewhere at an open mic or something, but I don't, it wasn't memorable real first gig. It was probably more of an open mic kind of thing. My parents were uh, classically trained. So I was the kid who had to schlep around the, the violin, you know, in sixth grade. And during the 60s, that just wasn't cool. It was always string instruments. So it went from, from there to the viola to the cello. And all I wanted to do was be a drummer. I admire you, especially because you have a goal in mind. I, a lot of musicians I talk to, it's kind of a similar path because it is such a difficult, I don't want to say competitive. It's not, you're competing with yourself, right? I mean, you're not. Right. I don't know. I just kept always practicing. I was kind of obsessive with music. Uh, you almost have to be kind of compulsive and um, OCD to be a musician, I think, because you have to like doing the same thing over and over, repetition, and not let that bother you if you don't do it right until, you know, the 10th time or the 200th time I finally get it something right. So you kind of have to be driven. You have to be compulsive about music. Yeah. I, I don't think I had that discipline. I was too worried about playing baseball and, you know, being a kid kind of thing. Yeah. But I admire the friends that I have who are musicians. It's it's the same kind of story. It's like, yeah, you got to stick with it. Like, let's go out and do something. It's like, no, nah, man, I got to practice. It's like it's saying, uh, it's hard to describe. I mean, uh, you, you just long to play. It's almost like it's a tangible thing. It becomes part of who you are. It is an extension of who you are, the instrument, eventually, after you play long enough. It's pretty amazing how it works out. Yeah. Did you finish your album? Is that out? Has it, has it been cut yet? It, it will be this month. Yeah. I'm, I'm mastering uh, the music this month, so it will be. It'll probably be at least 15 songs on this album. Wow. It'll be a big one. Tell me about the album. They're, they're all original songs. Most of them were inspired in 2019. I wrote a lot of songs in 2019, and this is pretty much all the songs I wrote in 2019. What was it about 2019? Um, I fell in love in 2019 and um, I lost my mom in 2019. So there was one of the songs is dedicated to my mom on the album. Um, a lot happened in 2019. And so mainly falling in love, it, it inspires you to write a lot of great love songs. Yeah. Was that worth the, this guy right here? Yes. With, with Ron? You got Ron mm -hmm. in the studio too. Yep. Hey, you're an inspiration. That's that's pretty awesome. He brought me a lot of inspiration. That is very true. My my music is flowing. It's it's 
it's really amazing how meeting someone can bring that much inspiration into your life. I get it. When I met my wife, I was the same way. It was kind of like, oh, everything's good. We're still together after 25, going on 26 years. Oh, congratulations. Appreciate it. I don't know how to describe you other than being an awesome musician, but you write. And I think the last time we talked that you said that some of your interests are in writing scores or? Yes, I, I love writing music, period. I find the music comes easier. Uh, than the lyrics. And most of the time, the music, I compose the chord progression and the melody usually comes first. And that kind of helps me, I guess, tune into what the song should be about. It kind of sets the stage for what the song will be about. Sometimes the words and music come together, though. I mean, that happens sometimes, too. I'm not just always music first, but sometimes I'll write a chord progression and the words will come. Just playing it over and over, it's like you're kind of like meditating on the music. And then all of a sudden, here comes inspiration. What's the name of your band right now that you're playing? It's the Carrie Dell Trio. And I, I call I used to be the Carrie Dell band, but I think it's impressive that we're three people that can put out a lot of music and play a lot of genres of music. I mean, we play everything from Chuck Berry to Adele to Bruno Mars, Journey, Led Zeppelin, uh, Patsy Klein, Hank Williams. I mean, we have such a big song list that we can pretty much please any audience. And that's kind of fun to do that. To show our diversity is, is what I, I'm very uh, proud of that we can play all kinds of music and still do the original music too. That keeps things really, really interesting. You know, I mean, I've seen some really good cover bands and that seems to be almost more of a business driven kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know. Now I'm pissing off everybody who's playing Beatles music or, <laughs> or whatever, but, but to me, it, it kind of a shtick, I guess. But then when you meet musicians who have a really diverse background like you do, I think that that's what keeps things interesting. And how did you meet your band members? How did that all come about? Um, well, my bass player, uh, Michael Brown, was a musician I met in Austin, Texas at an open mic. It was, a, it was kind of a singer-songwriter kind of um, event where you play three songs, kind of a coffee shop thing. And I met him in 94, and we pretty much hit it off and started playing music, started our own band in Austin, Texas. And we were a three-piece band at that time. So he played with me the longest for about 24 to 25 years. And then uh, my drummer, John, who I play with now... And I've been playing with him for 13 years. I met him in Colorado Springs and he was recommended to me as a good drummer to fill in for my drummer that had gone on to Korea for a, a band tour. So, so I met him through a mutual friend. And then my bass player, Robert Pearson, that, that's now playing in my band, I met him probably at Benny's open mic or something. And uh, I saved his number because when I find a good bass player, I like to save their number in my phone in case I need a backup player. And so I called Robert and asked him if he wanted to join the band. And he said he'd love to. So I've been with Robert since 2019 playing with him. And the, and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting that I guess he followed you to, to Colorado, Woodland Park area. So uh, Mike was my boyfriend. I, he became my boyfriend real fast and we kind of hit it off. And uh, so I was with Mike playing music in 94. We were doing all original music for the first three years of uh, our band we put together. And the band was called Timepiece. It wasn't Carrie Dell Trio back then. Um, I just thought Timepiece was a great name. I spelled it P-E-A-C-E. -E. I just thought it had the word Timepiece and that was a great name for a band. And so we both wrote music. We, he wrote songs, I wrote songs, and we both complimented each other's songs um, by arranging them the way we thought sounded great. And we went and performed places that just featured original music. And then he talked me into coming to Colorado in 99 to take a job at the KOA in Cripple Creek. And I was a little apprehensive because I was playing in Austin and 
you know, had established drummer and, but we, we took a job for a summer and then I decided I don't want to go back to Austin. <laughs> it's like, this is just too nice to live here. The weather's so much nicer. I can't stand a hundred degree weather every day. I just couldn't do it. So I loved it here. I didn't want to move. And the only reason we moved in 2001 uh, and go back to Texas, we had to repossess a garage door business that he sold to an, a, an employee. So that was a bummer to have to leave. And then I got back here as soon as I could. But uh, before I came back, I, I was spent two years in Las Vegas and that was hot too. But uh, that was an experience. I was going to say Vegas, because I used to work there a lot, you know, being in the in the car documentary industry. So the big SEMA show every year, that, you know, that's the, the, the highlight. But there, yeah. you know, there's a lot of off-road racers and stuff like that. But, but every time I went to Vegas, the more I went there, the less I liked it. Because it's such a, it's like an ant farm, you know, yes. and, and everybody's just doing their own little thing. I mean, LA is very much like that, you know, you're around 20 million people all day long trying to get uh, from, from one place to the next that takes you hours where here I can probably walk faster, you know, but it, it drove me crazy. It just became manic and, and uh, it starts to really affect your mind and it's kind of stifles your creativity because there's no, there's no quiet ever. Did you, did you play in Vegas? Is that what you were doing? I did, but I didn't do it professionally there. I, I hardly played and it felt like, it felt like I practiced more than I played, but we went to go visit one of Mike's friends in Las Vegas and we were only going to visit for like two weeks in our fifth wheel. But uh, in the two weeks that I was there, I met a great drummer and just felt like, well, maybe we're meant to stay here. I was kind of letting fate kind of take over and just sometimes you meet people and, uh, and you just feel totally connected. That's the way I felt with my drummer. So I just... This guy was like, his name was Alan. And I'm like, this guy's really good. Maybe we should stay here. And uh, we didn't have a house at the time. So we were in a fifth wheel and we could do that. So um, we started a band again. This time we added a keyboard player though. So we were a four piece band and we did play, but we didn't play a whole lot. Like on the main you know, strip of Las Vegas, it's really hard to get in those places. We played Boulder City in Nevada. We played um, some places in Las Vegas, but there really wasn't many bars that had live music, mainly the casinos that had entertainment. And then uh, during the day, I was kind of working for a, an architect as a courier. So I had a I had a day job and was still trying to book the band. Wow. Well, the other thing with with Vegas too, and those bigger cities, you've got unions that you have to deal with all the time, and it's just a, it becomes a the dream becomes a nightmare really quick. <laughs> yes, it was very competitive there. You have to have connections to play there. Yeah. I mean, you had to have a good agent. You had to have a video. They wanted tribute bands, and I'm like, I don't want to be a tribute band. I know, right? I like I like doing all kinds of music. I like playing blues, I like playing rock, I like playing all the different stuff. So it was hard, but it was the good thing that I got out of living there for two years. I watched Yellow Brick Road and watched that guy, the lead singer Brody. That guy was phenomenal in that band. I watched how good he was and and how he segued songs. So watching a lot of good bands for two years made me realize uh, it, it taught me some new stuff. So when I start performing things, I need to do to improve my craft. Kind of works the same way in television and, and motion pictures. And I'll be the first one to yeah. admit it. If I see a cool shot somewhere, I'm stealing it. <laughs> I mean, I have no shame. Like that was a phenomenal shot. And, you know, like they say, uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery kind of thing, you know, and, and uh, I definitely would jump on something like that, too. So, yeah, there's a lot of lessons learned from other people. I, I agree with you. Yeah, that guy Brody, and you might have seen him in Las Vegas. Yellowbrook Road was the highest paying band in Las Vegas when I was there from 2003 to 2005. And you just couldn't match him. He was just too good. He sounds like the record. 
Every wow. every song he sang, he matched every every band perfectly. Even the guitar player played everything note for note. So they had their own stage place uh, at some of the uh, local casinos. They were there every week. They were just phenomenal. So when you when you saw them, you'd realize, man, there's no there's no way you can be as good as they are. They're just too good. If you had to be a tribute band member, what band would it be? I would like to be Linda Ronstadt, but. Hey, there you go. I can sing her really well, but I also sing, everyone says I sound like Ann Wilson. So um, it'd probably, probably do better as Ann Wilson than Linda Ronstadt, but I could sing both of them pretty much very similar. You've got quite the range. I was surprised when you were hitting those high notes. That's a lot of stress on your vocal cords, right? Not really. I don't, I don't think I really, I just even, when I'm singing, I don't even feel like I'm using my vocal cords. It just feels like I'm breathing. It's the, it comes real natural now, but I, I wouldn't say I was always a great singer. I've, I've learned how to become a good singer. I've, I've self-taught myself how to be as good as I am now, but the main thing, you don't really use your, your throat to sing. Most of the time it is just breathing and learning how to breathe proper. And I don't really sing loud. Most of the time I'm singing pretty soft. So I'm not using a lot of uh, vocals as much as breathing. Well, your your voice is pretty powerful though. Yeah. I mean, I, and you want to put like uh, a dynamics in your singing. So when you're singing something very, you want people to really pay attention to, you project more, but you don't want to project all the time. Because that takes away the dynamics. It's kind of like um, music is dynamic as it is. So you want to you want to put an exclamational point, <laughs> you project, and then when you want people to really listen and like strain to hear you sing real soft. So the dynamics of singing soft and hard are very important, and because uh, th- that's you have to project that feeling too. You're projecting a feeling. You sing everything really loud, it would lose the feeling and the essence of what you're trying to sing. Yeah, or you you would be a uh, stage player at the Butte Theater somewhere. Yeah. So so singing doesn't seem to be hard for me. I can sing four hours and then come home and sing some more. It, it doesn't stress me out. I would say my jaw muscles uh, get more sore from singing, you know, three days in a row. My jaw will be like, wow, it's sore. Mine do from just talking all that smack on, on this microphone all the time. I, <laughs> I'm told I should maybe not talk as much, but who knows? Well, let me ask you this. As far as albums goes, is this the first album with original pieces or? This will really be officially the second album with original music. The first album I did, I, I kind of put 10 songs on a CD, but I had actually recorded like 20. So I do still have old songs that never did get on a CD. So those I need to, to somehow get them out there too, because they've been recorded, just not released on an official CD. So this is going to be number two. How long have you been working on this album now? I uh, started in 2020 and uh, I did a lot of the mixing in 2020, but I was just learning how to record my own music too. I'd never done this before. So I had to buy equipment and everything. And while I was in lockdown, I was trying to learn how to record music. And uh, that's how it started. Now I found a mastering guy, which I've been waiting to find somebody for like at least six months. And I found a great guy in the Springs I'm going to use. That's an art all in itself as well. I mean, finding a good producer and somebody who can master sounds. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a, it takes a key ear yeah. you know, that I've learned just from talking to people and being in the business that I was in for so long. And uh, if you got the wrong person, it can just screw it all up. I'm glad that you found somebody. Yeah. Mastering is a totally different thing. It's not like, I mean, I'm mixing and producing my own CD, putting all the parts and stuff on, but mastering, you really have to understand encoding and how to encode the actual uh, WAV file. So it has your name attached with the song title and the track number and the copyright information is all encoded in mastering. So it's kind of complicated. Yeah. That's a tremendous amount of work. Man, you find somebody who's got that kind of quality, it's going to save you a lot of time and money. Yes. Are you signed with anybody or how's that all working? Um, I have my own publishing company and uh, I'm just going to release it on my own through iTunes and uh, through my website and probably through DistroKid. 
Stro Kids were a lot of independent artists put their music out because it's easy to, um, they distribute most of your music through different outlets. It seems like musicians are doing that more and more. The entertainment business is is such a, I'll say it, it's a dirty business. It really is. If you have agents and stuff like that, they're like lechers. They're waiting for you to have a hit so they can make their money off of your back. Yeah. I was never really a big fan, even when I was an actor. It was just tough dealing with agents. But uh, musicians, it's kind of a whole different thing, you know, and you want to protect your music instead of selling it to other people and how many bands in history have sold their souls and just wound up hating each other what kind of advice do you have for people who are getting into this business who want to do what you do because you've had to learn a tremendous amount of lessons over the years oh sure i mean i've learned a lot it's taken a long time to figure out how to do everything yourself you gotta be driven and motivated to do this because i mean it took i had to learn how to record my own music i produced it myself i put all the parts play keyboards and a lot of the songs are piano songs that were written but it's a lot of work learning how to get gigs yourself. What advice do I have? You just have to be very organized too. I would say not only motivated and driven, but you have to have a plan and be very organized in what you want to accomplish. As far as gigs and stuff, I just, I, I'm pretty much hustle a lot. And so that's how I make a living playing. I mean, I am competitive. I try to be as good as I can be and put feeling behind each song I sing and show my diversity of what kind of music I can play. As far as recording your own music and doing that stuff, it's not always easy to learn how to do all that stuff by yourself. So sometimes having help is a good thing. If you can find friends that know how to record already, get you out there to produce your own music. That's another suggestion I could offer. The most important thing is copyright your music through the copyright office and um, sign up with BMI or ASCAP. Pick one of those two entities to sign up your original music with and and read a lot, I guess, on different ways to, to get your music out there. I'm trying to learn too. I mean, publishing companies is where I think it's at. If you can sell one song to a movie or even get it on a TV show, that's 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 success to me. Yeah, that opens the door right up, doesn't it? It sure does because that's, I mean, that would be awesome. I just I just want my music to be heard. I think I have a, a, a good uh, feel for writing music and I think it's, uh, it's sellable. Yeah. You don't have to convince me. You got quite a following regionally here though. It's a packed house anytime you play. That's a lot of hard work. I mean, it's many years of playing and, and building up your fan base, advertising that you're playing and and you just got to keep doing the same consistent, you know, rotation of, again, marketing yourself as much as you can. You know, post stuff on Facebook, even though it's not my favorite social media place, but that's the place to go. Yeah. And YouTube is probably the best social media for any musician or singer songwriter. There's so many platforms that are out there now. And it's like, it's kind of a necessary evil, unfortunately, you know? Exactly. But uh, I think these days, a lot of social media has just become a distraction, takes away from reality. (laughs) That's that's very true. People spend way too much time in a virtual world. That's very true. I agree with you. I'm really excited to hear the whole album. And uh, listeners, we're going to use some of Carrie's licks to uh, do our intros and outros today. But uh, what do you got coming up? I guess you're playing all the time. Yes, I am playing all the time. Uh, But uh, that's kind of, again, that's how I make a living. So, But my next gig that's coming up, Pretty soon is Rhapsody this Friday, and I'm looking forward to playing there. That's right there, just here in Woodland Park. And then uh, Saturday, I'm in Castle Rock at 105 West Brewing Company, and we have a a big fan base there. And uh, so the only thing I need to do now, is since this album's pretty much done, I just got to get it mastered this month, is find someone to help me with the artwork or find someone to help me put that together. If you are that somebody, hit us up on thisweekinthebearcave at gmail.com and we'll make sure you get hooked up with Carrie. Where do we find your music at? I know you got some uh, some sources on YouTube. Yep. My website is just www.cari.com. 
D-E-L-L.com. And I have music for download there on my website, right there under uh, music. And uh, it's a music tab there on my website. And yes, my music, some of it's on YouTube. Some of it's on distrokid.com. If you put in Carrie Dell, you'll find music you can download there too. That's awesome. Carrie, I'm so happy that you were able to come into the Bear Cave and uh, don't be a stranger. We're going to have you back a few times. How's that sound? That sounds great, Dennis. Thank you for having me. All right. That was Carrie Dell. And, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to let her play us out into the next act because up next it's story time with Michelle. So don't go away. tired of gambling or maybe gambling just isn't your thing then you need to come visit the historic butte theater located in the heart of cripple creek colorado enjoy our classic melodramas shakespeare of the west musicals comedies and our community's favorite christmas show the butte is fun for the whole family so get your tickets today at thebuttheater.com and come join in our fun Cave. I'm Dennis Zerl, and right now it's story time with Michelle on the Bear Cave Hotline. Hey, Michelle, how's it going today? Hey, it's a short week. I think I can make it. <laughs> You're still having some uh, ear problems, I, I take it. I am. It sucks. So we'll try to fit a doctor's appointment in there somewhere and get some better drugs this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's got to be a Dr. Quinn medicine woman somewhere up there in Cripple Creek. Yeah, I know. Yeah, she's buried, though. <laughs> Yeah, well, there is that. Oh, boy. Well, anyway, you're going to start a new kind of mini series with stories this week, right? And uh, so tell us what it's all about. So, you know, we're talking about the history of Cripple Creek. Victor, we've talked about the railroads, talked a little bit about the mines. And when we first started our adventure in Bear Cave, um, we even brought your wife on and we had that nice long discussion about prostitution. And so 
I'm going to kind of revisit that and talk a little bit more specifically about um, prostitution and such things here in Cripple Creek. Yeah, give those painted ladies some love. For sure, for sure. So we mentioned back then, and we'll just do a reminder, um, here in Cripple Creek, our famous red light district was right on Myers Avenue. So the land on which the city of Cripple Creek was built had been a cattle ranch belonging to two Denver real estate men. When platting the city, they gave their names to what were to become the two principal streets. So Bennett Avenue became the financial and shopping center, and Myers Avenue, just one block south, became one of the West's most notorious red light districts. It was lined with saloons, gaming halls, parlor houses, and cribs from 3rd Street through 4th Street and 5th, and finally, it ran into Poverty Gulch. So that's about like three, four blocks of prostitution and gaming and and saloons. It's kind of ironic that the uh, bank is right next door or or the next street above it, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) Makes it convenient, I guess. There's a story why that's called Masonic Avenue over there. We'll cover that one day. (laughs) Oh, boy. So on April 25th, 1890, one of the girls from the Central Dance Hall got into a fight with her man and knocked over a gasoline stove. The fire they started leapt from building to building, and in hours, the whole red light district was nothing but a field of ashes. Ouch. Ouch. But within a few weeks, all the establishments on Myers Avenue were back in business again. They were not wasting any time. Wow. (laughs) So the street looked about the same after the fire as it did before. Shacks were thrown up quickly to serve the thirsty, lonely miner. As the camp continued to grow, buildings were replaced with brick ones. And there was a reason for that as well. So after the big fires took out most of the town, uh, an ordinance was put out there that everything should be built on brick on the main streets. By 1900, Myers Avenue had a look of big city permanent. Streetcars ran through it every few minutes with bright lights, free spending miners, and music filling the evenings with scores of places. Myers was about the liveliest street in all the West. I bet it was. I'm sure it was. <laughs> the whole of Cripple Creek's tenderloin was at the lower part of the city near the meandering creek that gave the town its name. So you can imagine people did not care for it very much down there when you have streetcars passing right through there. Yeah. Well, you know, a little bit of advertising. Exactly. <laughs> so when Carrie Nation, one of the country's most inhibited crusaders, visited Cripple Creek, she called it a foul cesspool. It was, she claimed, the most lawless and wicked city to be found anywhere. She warned the people of the gold camp that Myers Avenue was luring innocent men and women by the hundreds to death and destruction. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. She's a little dramatic, right? Well, well, there's a lot of people in Teller County that are just like that right now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) With hatchets in hand, correct? (laughs) Not much has changed. I'm sorry, sir. You can't bring that torch in here. Right. (laughs) So Myers Avenue had a bad reputation as any street in the West, and it did its best to live up to it for over 20 years. So that's a little taste of what Myers Avenue is about. And we'll talk a little bit later about some of the women um, that actually were very successful. You know, it's amazing because uh, prostitution was not really legal, and the law just kind of turned a blind eye to it, right? As long as you're within the hours of operation so to speak. Correct. Well, so as long as they stayed on Myers Avenue, they were open 24-7. But when you got onto Bennett Avenue, there were certain hours that you were allowed as a prostitute to be on Bennett Avenue to go shopping. And all the good people, quote unquote, 
would stay home. And as long as the girls stayed out of trouble, they didn't get bothered. But the city benefited from it because they had a head tax. So every prostitute paid a head tax and every madam paid a higher head tax uh, for having multiple prostitutes work for. So the, the city made some pretty good money off of them. It's amazing that it went on that long and that uh, that it survived that long. There was quite a, a prostitution ring all the way into the 50s and 60s. Wow. Yeah. I guess that's why they started building so many churches, huh? <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> Who knows? All right. Good story. I can't wait to hear the continuation of it next week. It's uh, going to be interesting. I mean, people try to bury history sometimes because it may not be what they want it to. Because it's ugly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I guess so. But uh, it's almost like, you know, what's the difference between being woke and trying to bury Confederate history or trying to bury your own history within the county? Correct. I agree. No, it, it's it's out there. It's real. And why not acknowledge it? We can learn from it, you know? Yeah. Well, there are some good things that happened. I mean, Pearl DeVere and, and a couple of the other more wealthy prostitutes who did a lot of good for the community and helped people Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yep, there's always good, there's always bad, but, you know, it just at least embrace the history. It, it exists. Yeah, <laughs> you just can't ignore it. <laughs> we're not going to sugarcoat on the bear cave, that's for sure. But uh, That's right. <laughs> all right. What other kind of happenings are going on up there in the uh, Cripple Creek Victor area? Well, the borough races over in Victor are going on this weekend. Oh, so that's you right. and I talked a, yeah, we talked a little bit about that and that's gonna be some good cool stuff. It's like it's a nationwide thing, isn't it? Is didn't we talk about that? Yeah, I mean these are like top level athletes that this is a thing. And, and yeah. uh, I was surprised. I had no idea. I, me either. I didn't really think about it. I was like, holy cow. I read up a little bit on it. I was like, it is, it is a big deal. The following weekend, September 16th through the 18th, we didn't talk about this, the Rocky Mountain Rambler 500. Oh, Have yeah. you ever heard of that? Yeah. Kim mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I think it's worth mentioning again. It is. It's so cool. So the, the premise of it is you have to basically pay less, $500 or less for a vehicle and it has to run and then they do a race down one of the byways. You should see some of the junksters that come in and the creativity. It is a hoot and they, they're just there to have fun. That's it. They just want to have fun. There'll be big old um, oversized yard games and things like that. They usually have uh, sell beer and stuff like that, but it's fun. It's cool. They're fun to talk to. So I really encourage you to get over to Victor and check it out. And I think the, uh, the whole premise is to see how much garbage you can collect on these on these routes and the person who has the most garbage when they get back to the finish line or, or whatever is the winner. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> and actually the same weekend, uh, Mount Pisgah Speaks, which is the cemetery tour up here in Cripple Creek where people from the Victorian Society dress and impersonate people who are buried in our local cemetery. And it is a phenomenal tour. Yeah, I think I need to check that out because, uh, you know, I, I like that whole cemetery thing because there's so much history that you can derive from just walking through some of those old cemeteries. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they do such a good job. I mean, they do the research and they find out really what these people's stories are and portray them. So it's bringing history to life. It's awesome. I highly recommend it. Now, is uh, Greater Tuna still playing at the Butte Theater? It is indeed. It closes on September 17th. So if you haven't gone and see it, get up here, get your ticket. They're actually running two different deals. If you come dressed in Western garb and you go up to the ticket window, you can buy one ticket and get one free. Wow. It's ridiculous, right? Yeah. Way to go, Zach. <laughs> I know. So, but you do have to do that in person. You do have to be in Western garb. Also, they have another buy one, get one half off. You can call in here. You can 
Colin at the Butte Theater. And if you just buy one ticket, you get the second one half off to see Greater Tuna. The good news is that it puts us closer to Young Frankenstein. I know. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> I've never seen a stage play of Young Frankenstein. That's got to be interesting. I mean, the show is a classic. I know. I know. I haven't seen it on the theater either, so I'm totally stoked. I love it. <laughs> Me too. All right, Michelle. Well, thanks again for coming in to the Bear Cave Hotline. As usual, we miss you. And uh, I can't wait to see what our second chapter of Myers Avenue is going to be all about next week. I'll try to make it as interesting as possible. <laughs> all right. Sounds awesome. All right, Michelle. We'll have an awesome day and take care of that earache. We'll do that. Thanks, Dennis. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. That was my partner in crime, Michelle Roselle, coming to us from the Heritage Center in Cripple Creek. So up next is our field producer, Trevor Phipps, with Local Happenings, followed by the director of marketing for the Rocky Mountain Vibes, Kay Goodell. We'll be right back. Are you having a hard time seeing out of those dirty Colorado windows? Or maybe it's just time to finally clean those sidewalks, garages, and those stains on services around your home and office. Well, now there's a solution, and it's Peak Washing LLC. Veteran-owned and operated, Peak Washing LLC is your mobile window cleaning and pressure washing solution. Their services range from residential jobs to commercial projects using a safe and environmentally friendly approach. Peak Washing LLC can also clean and sanitize heavy construction equipment. There's virtually no job that Peak Washing can't handle. So call Greg at 719-651-7518 or find them on their Facebook page under Peak Washing LLC. That's Peak Washing LLC, your solution to that dirty job. back in the bear cave and once again on the bear cave hotline it's our field producer trevor phipps trevor how's it going good how are you doing i'm doing okay i had a kind of a chill weekend didn't do a whole lot but kind of getting down to business here i guess by now if you haven't seen the video that came out or the or the uh, i guess it's the police camera footage that came out with the uh whole uh eilingworth issue versus samantha peck issue versus whatever to me, it looked like a scene out of Star Wars, some weird segment where Obi-Wan does the Jedi mind trick on the Imperial Guard. Yeah. She did the lawyer mind trick on the police officer from Woodland Park. I don't know. Kind of give me your take on that whole thing. It was just a, wow, that was some footage. Yeah, it's kind of strange. I guess the Gazette posted the did the original 911 call and then they posted the body camera footage from when they approached the alleged victim. So who Miss Peck? called the police on originally one of the posts that i saw like somebody pointed out on social media that at the end of the conversation the police officer pretty much already said what he was going to charge samantha peck with after talking to eilingworth and before he ever even talked to peck again you know being a lawyer it kind of seemed like she <laughs> kind of told the cop who it was and what he should charge her with at least she didn't have to lawyer up you know yeah yeah but what I thought was so weird is, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seemed like she just kind of let him right along as to what the charges should be. And you know, she let him know that she was a lawyer. But from looking at that police footage, she was clearly sober. 
I mean, she was not drunk at all, in, in my opinion. But, you know, kid, I'm watching you off of some social media channel. But So where do you think this is all going to go? Or uh, are we just flipping a coin here to see which side it's going to land on? I think the charges will probably drop. I mean, you got to think if you're this uh, highfalutin lawyer that she's got, I can't remember his name again. But uh, if I'm that guy and civil rights is my jam, then I'm going to take that video and... That's the first thing I'm going to present to the judge. Yeah. Oh, boy. I guess we'll see where it goes. But uh, and well, on the fact that, too, that Ironworth works for the DA's office, <laughs> I think that's going to be, I don't know, tough for them to prosecute. Oh, uh, you mean uh, David Ironworth? To me, there could be some sort of conflict if the DA's office does try to prosecute her when one of your employees' wives is a victim. Hey, maybe her husband will get up there and prosecute it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. It was kind Kind of a telling piece of footage, I I would say, to say the least. But uh, I haven't really heard anything coming back or any kind of blowback from the uh, results of the recall. I think it was pretty straight up. I, you know, I've seen a few things on social media that I don't know what it is. People are always trying to make an issue out of something. It's pretty cut and dry. It's like the numbers are all there. They're very clear. They were very well organized and lined out. And uh, if it's me, I think our county clerk did due diligence and did a did a great job. And uh, um, I don't see any kind of issues. Yeah, I think, I mean, it seemed like be the biggest thing was just people signed that weren't in the district, which could have been by accident. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's not like some big cities where they hire professional signature gatherers, for lack of better terms. If you're just a, a volunteer that's believing in your cause, you may miss a signature or not look at an address. But I think some of that could have been solved just by taking a few minutes and looking down and going, hey, wait a minute, you're from Kansas. You can't really sign this, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, and the other thing that people aren't thinking about is that the district boundaries for Woodland Park School District are kind of weird. So there's a chance somebody could think that they were in the boundaries of the district when they aren't necessarily. The boundaries are pretty cut and dry on like the east, north, west ends of the county. But then once you get into divide, the south parts of divide and force, and it gets kind of tricky because Cripple Creek comes in. Right. Well, either way, like we've always said before, I hope both parties at least put all this stuff aside and take into account the fact that you got kids that are going to school that need to be educated by the best possible teachers we can find and get on with life. Yeah. Anyway. All right. I know you're working on a couple of stories and uh, lately I noticed you're highlighting businesses in the paper now. And uh, what's the business that you're highlighting this week? What can we look forward to in the mountain jackpot? Oh, this week I wrote a good article on Mountainara Cucina Italiana. It's a new authentic Italian food restaurant. It's in the Gold Hill South Shopping Center, kind of by City Market. And I went and tried it oh, about a week ago and it was it was awesome. It's, it's the real deal. He's from Italy. And he's got some more Americanized dishes because he was kind of explaining that, like your fettuccine Alfredo and your chicken Parmesan didn't really originate in Italy, but he's still making some of those, but he's putting a Italian spin on it, like how they would cook those items in Italy. And then he's also got some authentic Italian dishes too, like nochi. And um, he's got this like pork roll that he rolls up with sage and then slow cooks for like four hours and slices it. Man. He's got a walleye that I guess has been getting really good response. You know, just about a year ago, we were having this conversation and people were talking about 
they wish they had an Italian restaurant in Woodland Park. And all of a sudden, poof, here it is. I guess it kind of came about at the barber shop. Roberto, the owner, was telling me he, he wasn't really interested in opening another restaurant because he got sick of dealing with the people through COVID, mainly staff. He was having trouble with people calling off and just having trouble with staff like everyone else was. So when he moved from Colorado Springs to Florissant, kind of wanted to get out of the restaurant industry. But then I guess he went to the barber shop here in town and they kept telling him every time he went in there, like, we need an Italian food restaurant in town. We need an Italian food restaurant in town. <laughs> Good for you guys over there. So so he found the spot and huh. I guess he did a lot of remodeling. He revamped the whole kitchen, repainted the dining room. He did a lot on the kitchen to kind of make it good for what he needs to use it for. And another thing he was saying, which is kind of interesting, he said that in Europe, the standards as far as food cleanliness and the rules that you have to follow with a restaurant are a lot more strict and stringent than they are in the United States. So coming here, he was already used to working under a higher level of scrutiny and more cleaning and that sort of thing. So when he came here, the standards were really easy for him to meet. That's either a good thing or a really bad thing, I guess, depending upon which way you look at it. It's like, uh, why am I getting sick coming to this restaurant? All of his meals are pretty reasonably priced between 20 and 30. And he said he's trying to keep it that way, but he's kind of operating on a low profit margin because of that. We may have to get him to step into the bear cave at some point. Anyway, as I'm talking about my expanding waistline, let's talk about some local high school sports. And hey, we made good on our promise. We went to the game Friday night and I was surprised, man. That place was packed. It was a pretty brutal game, too. There was a lot of big hits. Oh, boy, was there ever. We were standing on the end zone when uh, Salida had the ball and there was a massive, and I mean massive hit on the opposite end of the field. So whoever was involved in that collision, I hope that kid is okay because he was down for a little while. Yeah, I haven't heard on that, but it, they didn't seem like they were rushing him anywhere. So I think I had heard that they just kicked him out because he had concussion symptoms and just wanted to make sure he was okay. Well, I left a little bit earlier, but uh, wrap up the game for me. How did it all turn out for him? Well, the Panthers ended up winning by one point they were the first ones to score and the first half they recovered two fumbles on the defense side and then one of them they turned into a score through an Aiden Hood running play and they were up 14 to nothing and then and then Salida seemed to come back a little bit they they got two touchdowns and they tied it and then in the second half it kind of seemed like the Panthers slowed down a little bit third quarter Salida came back and got another touchdown and then kicked an extra point making it 21 to 14 towards the end of the game the Panthers got a pretty good drive going and made a couple big plays drove it down to the field and the quarterback Bryce Broker scrambled in for a touchdown and there was it was in the final min- minutes of the game and it was 21 to 20 and instead of trying to kick a field goal to tie it they put their offense back on and went for two and they ended up scoring and getting the two-point conversion and they came to score 22 to 21 and then there wasn't enough time for the spartans to reply so they ended up winning their first home game of the year that's awesome so i guess they're sticking with the smash mouth football philosophy and uh well they worked for them this week who have they got coming up in the uh, next week or two um, next week, they play at home again this week, this Friday, against Mitchell Marauders. That should be an easy one for them to win, I think, just because Mitchell, is, they lost their first game like 52 to nothing. So I'm hoping the Panthers can use home field advantage. That sounds like last year's Vibes game scores. Yeah. 
following week they have a bye, they have a week off, and then they come back home on September 23rd for their homecoming game. All right, that sounds good. For Trevor and I, it's kind of a sad week because this is the last week where you can catch the home stand for the vibes and it's over. We're going to have Kay Goodell coming in here right after your segment, but I got to say, it looked kind of bleak at the beginning of the season, but man, they really pulled it together in the second half. Yeah, that whole revamping they did to their team and the um, renegotiation of the contract really seemed to help them out a lot, like black and white. (laughs) I'm hoping that they can take that momentum and use it as a springboard to go into the next season because uh, it seems like the season went by so fast, but uh, I'm I'm really happy for them and I'm glad that they they ended on a high note. Yeah. All right, Trevor, I'll check in with you again next week. Okay, that sounds good. That was our field producer, Trevor Phipps, coming into the Bear Cave Hotline with some local happenings. And speaking of local happenings, I just want to remind everyone not to forget the 9-11 ceremonies going on in Woodland Park this weekend. In Woodland Park, post-1980, along with VFW post-6051, will perform a memorial ceremony on September 11th at the Lions Park in Woodland Park. And they are commemorating the efforts and sacrifices of the first responders who charged into that catastrophe, risking danger to save human lives. The ceremony begins at 9 a.m. on September 11th, that's Sunday, and the public is encouraged to attend. Well, moving along, next on the Bear Cave Hotline is the Director of Marketing for the Rocky Mountain Vibes, Kay Goodell. Kay, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Boy, I don't know. It's been a, an emotional last two weeks, I guess. I mean, the, the games have been so good and they've been so close. I think last week was uh, the one game that kind of put it all in perspective for me about single-A baseball in the Rookie League was uh, the NOCO game. I think it was last Friday night. The Vibes were kind of in a comfortable lead and then all of a sudden NOCO has the bases loaded, two hours. It's full count, and they hit an in-park home run and win the game. Yep. Oh, yeah, that was tragic. We were the te- the heart in, in this team is just incredible, and you could really see it from the dugout down there how the how their mood swung in that moment. Oh man, it crushed my tiny little baseball heart. Oh, it did. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, they wound up. I think they wound up winning the series. I mean, they. Yeah, they, we've won the last two series, and it's just been such a turnaround, really. Um, kind of all around throughout here, and it's been incredible to see them on the field. I think that's kind of what makes it so fun watching uh, rookie ball and, uh, and single A ball because you really don't know what's going to happen. And I think it was the announcer that said the same thing. He's like, I've seen 10 runs in an inning. So you're never really in a comfortable position. Uh, realistically, I like if you had a bingo card for things that happen at baseball games, not a single one of them would have been <laughs> on. That, that's happened this season. Like we've had umps getting hurt and pausing the game, like fights, all these crazy things. <laughs> they happen here at UC Health Park and it's incredible. Yeah, there was a couple of intense games with with our, our our favorite people from Grand Junction and uh, man and then uh, yeah the Owls got cops some attitude towards the end of the game is like never dull moment <laughs> yeah, never dull here <laughs> you know next week uh, I was telling our our listeners that uh, we're gonna kind of wrap up the season so we're gonna have you back for one more time but yeah it's kind of a sad week it's the end of the season gave it the best effort almost was able to pull off a playoff spot but we still got games left at home kind of wrap up this week for me yeah um, it's gonna be it's a huge week in the park here for us we play Thursday Friday. Saturday. 
Friday is the last time we get to wear those awesome Springs jerseys um, and our last time that we have fireworks this season. So those Springs jerseys will be auctioned off after the game. And we have those fireworks after the game. It's our last firework Friday, which is one of my favorite nights. And then Saturday is sponsored by Donate Life Colorado, which is a really amazing organization out here. Um, and they've got awesome stuff. It's going to be Colorado theme night. So that Colorado flag will be flying. And then we're even going to auction off our home jerseys as well. I've got to say, what you guys have been able to pull off this season is nothing short of, uh, I don't want to say it's a miracle. It's just a, it's just been a really good season so far. And getting crowds up to 6,000 people is nothing short of amazing. Yeah, uh, we compete with double uh, A numbers. Um, I was talking to a couple of my buddies that are in double A and some in triple A. And, and our numbers compete. It's, a, it's definitely a baseball town for sure here. We didn't make the playoffs. We got really close. But now it's a, a matter of playing for pride and just uh, playing for your teammates. And you're not really going to spoil anything by taking some games out of Grand Junction. But it feels damn good. It does. It feels it felt good to open up the series last night with winning, <laughs> especially against them. I know the boys, they they're hurt that they aren't going to playoffs, but you would not see that in their abilities on the field at all. It all shows in the body language, too, because, the, you know, they're still got pep in their step. They're coming out. They're not, you know, kicking the dirt and just looking kind of bored. It's always kind of that way when you're trying to figure things out with a club like this. You know, the first of the season was kind of like, uh oh, here we go again. And then all of a sudden it was just like, is this the same team I was watching the first <laughs> You know, 40 games? Yeah, what's going on? Yeah, no, we, we definitely turned it around and came together. And that's, that's largely due to the, the boys on the field just putting their whole heart into it and playing the game they love, for sure. Friday, Saturday is the homestand, and it's against our uh, our other rivals, I guess, in Grand Junction. So I'm expecting some big crowds. Oh, yeah, it's, it's already our pre-sale numbers are, are, are big. So we're expecting to have a very busy night every night. What are you looking forward to the most besides taking some time off when the season ends? Ooh, I mean, I'm excited. I'm going to take a little vacation after the season ends. But realistically, I've already dove into planning next season. So I'm just going to put some dots on some things and contracts for next season and make it even a bigger and better time here at the park. Getting really my own touch on all our theme nights and promos and all that stuff is really going to come from me going into next season. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, it never really kind of ends for you, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, I've, I'm well into planning. I started planning next season in July and then I actually have most of some fun, exciting things for off season that I'm finalizing this week. Hopefully that'll get you guys out at the park just as often. Well, I know from the uh, from the Bear Cave, we've sure had a great time this season, and uh, we just want to thank you for treating us so well. We've had a we've had a great time every every game we've gone to. It's been awesome. I, I love watching the fans because they're having such a great time and all the activities. Just uh, it's like a baseball game plus. It is, and I mean, I, it's hard for me to take a step back and just take in the atmosphere at the ball games and so much going on. But when I do, it's just it's an incredible feeling to see everyone smiling and laughing and having a good time, and that's that's what I'm here for. Yeah, when I do catch up to you. You always have an earpiece in and you're uh, you're kind of buzzing around the park <laughs> almost every day. I know. Game. It's so hard to get me at a game because <laughs> I'm just running around. <laughs> well, we've been lucky. We've been able to catch up to you, but uh, we're, gonna, yeah. we're definitely going to catch up to you sometime this week. And uh, for sure, get out to the game. you got three games left in the homestand and let's go out and support our boys. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> All right, Kay. Well, we look forward to seeing you this week, and uh, go Vibes. Perfect. Go Vibes. We'll see ya. Thanks, Kay. That was our friend, the director of marketing for the Rocky Mountain Vibes, Kay Goodell. I tell you what, this lady is one of the hardest working ladies in baseball. Up next, it's News of the Weird, and find out who gets tossed on the bear pile this week. Don't go away.
Do you have an upcoming special event and don't know what to do? In the Shadow Designs can create one-of-a-kind pieces for you. Located in the heart of Woodland Park, Colorado, In the Shadow Designs specializes in beautiful centerpieces, wreaths, and one-of-a-kind creations for your home or business. Whether it's a baby shower, celebration of life, anniversary, or corporate event, let In the Shadow Designs meet your needs. So contact In the Shadow Designs today on their Facebook page or give them a call at 818-400-1456. Let In the Shadow Designs do the work for you so you don't have to. In the Bear Cave, I'm your host, Dennis Zarrell, and now it is time for News of the Weird. Well, this week the headline reads, Bright Idea. You're going to love this one. John Stewart, 27 of Snohomish County, Washington, has been doing a lot of fishing as of late, but not for the aquatic specimens Washington is known for. Instead, Stewart has been using a rodent glue trap attached to fishing line to take money out of a night deposit box around the area. Uh, okay, here's a guy with a rodent glue trap attached to fishing line and he's trying to lift money out of night deposit boxes. Ah, genius, what could go wrong? This particular method is pretty unique. We haven't seen this one before, said Jason Toner, who was the chief of the Stanwood Police Department. A Wells Fargo bank in Stanwood was able to capture video of Stewart, although he also hit more than a dozen other banks. He was only successful a few times out of the many times he tried in area banks, said Toner. Uh, yeah, bank cameras all over the place? Um, okay, no genius here. Mensa, you're safe, not a new member. Well, end result is now good old Stewie faces 13 counts of burglary in the second degree. Well, Stewie, hopefully uh, you've learned your lesson and you won't have to be fishing for any of that soap where you're going. But one thing is for sure, there is no fishing but only tossing on the bear pile. And as you know, each week we nominate the top events and or people who should be tossed in the bear pile and eaten by the bears. The person, place, and or thing to be thrown in the bear pile to be eaten by the bears this week is... Colin Lee Shower. Remember him from last week? For having mommy issues and driving his forklift into his girlfriend's car, pinning it against a bus. I'm still wondering where that forklift came from but uh, oh well. This week, the nominations are number one, Sniffy Joe Biden and his Save the Soul of America speech. I'm still looking for that vendetta mask. I I know it's around here somewhere. Uh, I'll find it. Number two, Sean Stewie Stewart for fishing without a license. I think maybe he was uh, sniffing too much of that rodent glue. And number three, the White House spokeshole, Katrine Jean-Pierre for continuing to read off the wrong script each and every day. Man, it's got to be painful knowing that your job is to make things up and that no one's buying it. 
Well, once again, that's it for me this week. As always, thanks for joining me, and I hope you had a great time. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Abode Real Estate, the Historic Butte Theater, In the Shadow Designs, and Peak Washing, LLC. Thanks to our special guest, Carrie Dell, for coming into the Bear Cave today and allowing us to share some of her music during the show in our intros and outros. And to my partner in crime, Michelle Roselle, for bringing us story time this week. Still my favorite part of the show. And thanks, as always, to our field producer, Trevor Phipps. If you have an event coming up or you want to become a sponsor of the show, hit us up on our Facebook page, This Week in the Bear Cave, or our Instagram page by the same name. You can access the show on Spotify, Podbean, or Anchor by Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, your hate mail can be sent to thisweekinthebearcave at gmail.com. Our guest next week is going to be White House Press Secretary Katrine Jean-Pierre, and also if she knows the definition of the word reality. The first officer from Air France, Pepe Le Pew, was supposed to come into the bear cave, but we were told that he is training for his first cage match fight. Now that he has all this time on his hands. Yeah, not flying these days. Talk to you again next week, everyone. Be well, and thanks for listening. Sweet dreams, Sam and Max. This Week in the Bear Cave is produced by Animus Productions, all rights reserved in perpetuity. 